Our text for this afternoon is Isaiah chapter 25. This is the word of God. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. Like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill, and he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls. He will bring it down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. Pray with me, dear friends. Lord, I would just simply ask that you would add the presence of your Holy Spirit and your blessing on our study of your word, may we be faithful to your word that we might hear your holy voice. And may we be encouraged and challenged in whatever way that you would encourage us and challenge us for your glory. God, do your will among your people, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And you can be seated. The story of Christmas is one of hope and of promise fulfilled. We've spent the last few weeks, of course, in our Advent readings, reminding each other of the glorious promise of God to send someone into the world to rescue his people and who would rule forever. And we saw that promise uh, even in last Sunday's message, right? In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's familiar, isn't it? And when Jesus came, many people were confused. See, they knew Emmanuel, God with us, had come. But they expected all those kingly promises about Jesus to be both immediate and earthly. They didn't realize that Jesus came on a very particular mission. What happened at Christmas? What happened at Christmas is the Savior came. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled all the requirements of righteousness before the Lord. And he will give that perfect record of his perfect life, of his perfect righteousness to all who come to him in faith. He will grant us a gift of what theology people like to call imputed righteousness, which means it's a righteousness that isn't yours, but it's counted as if it is yours. He gives us that so that we might enter the presence of God. Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice. He allowed himself to be punished, to suffer for the sins of people like you and me who could never atone for our own sins. And he applies that perfect atonement to all who come to him in true faith. Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus finished his perfect work. He actually made absolutely certain of saving all the people he came to save. In no way, this is important, in no way did Jesus fail. In no way did Jesus try to accomplish a thing that he could not accomplish? And now we live in a very unique time. On the one hand, the victory is won. The promise of God has come. Salvation is freely given to all who come to Jesus. Our lives are changed. The Spirit indwells the saved. And the church shares the gospel and pushes back the darkness in a fallen world. On the other hand, the promise of God is still to be fulfilled. All the darkness has not yet lifted, has it? All the saved are not yet in the family of God. All the lost are not yet finally judged. All the evil is not yet eradicated. All the hurt is not yet healed. Here's the promise we need. Jesus Christ will return. Christ will finish finally fully the battle. Christ will defeat the devil and every single one who follows him. And Jesus will rule the globe and the universe as King of kings and Lord of lords with no opposition forever. And we await and we long for and we speed that day as we look for that fulfillment in that perfect second advent of Jesus, his second coming. We long for the kingly promises of Jesus to be finally fulfilled. 
So we pray as Jesus taught us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today I want to take us to a place where we can see a call to respond to the Lord and to hope in the second advent of the Savior. Here in Isaiah, we're going to read a glorious song of hope and a dreadful warning of judgment. We'll read of the work that Christ has promised he will finish at his second advent. Isaiah the prophet ministered in the land of Judah from the years 740 to 686 B.C. And Isaiah brought the word of the Lord and faithful counsel to several kings of Judah, men who sometimes obeyed God's word, but who often ignored their God to great laws. And while many of the prophecies in Isaiah are quite specific to a particular time and to a particular people, some of the sections are broader in their scope. The 12 poetic verses we study today, they are glorious, they are global, they are timeless. They draw upon some themes that are in earlier chapters of Isaiah, but for the most part, these verses speak just as much to you and me today as they spoke to the people of Judah in the late 8th or early 7th centuries B.C. This passage will break into three sections as we study it. We'll find a point of application in each section. So point number one, you guys ready for this? Have you ever had an Isaiah 25 sermon before that you know of? There you go. If nothing else, you get something new today. Point number one, shelter in the Lord. Shelter in the Lord. Look at verse 1. It says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. So the song opens up. And we see a glorious declaration by the prophet. It's a declaration that every last one of us should make. In fact, you must make this declaration. Isaiah declares, O Lord, you are my God. The word Lord is the proper Hebrew for the name of God, Yahweh. Isaiah is not speaking in general to some God out there. This is not Isaiah saying that some amorphous power is his master. No, Isaiah is declaring himself to be under the lordship, the mastery, the kingship, the authority of the one true God revealed in Scripture. Yahweh is the covenant name of God, the triune God, the God revealed to us as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the point we're making here, shelter in the Lord, is a simple application of what Isaiah says as he opens the song. You see, Isaiah is using language that declares himself to be in a covenant relationship with God. Isaiah is in a relationship with God where God's the master and Isaiah is the servant. And as the servant, Isaiah is committed to obey and to serve the Lord. And as the master, God has promised blessing to Isaiah. Today, that application is ours in Jesus Christ. You see, for you or me to have a relationship with God, we must come to God through faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work. 
And when we come to Jesus in faith, God agrees to be our Father, our Lord, our King, our Master. God will forgive our sins and grant us eternal life, forever blessing, glorious resurrection with the Savior. We, as part of coming to Jesus, yield ourselves to Him as our Lord. We surrender our lives to Jesus as any faithful servant would surrender to his king. And by the way, if you are unwilling to surrender your life to Jesus as your Lord, you can't come to him as Savior because believing in Jesus implies surrendering to him. Well, later in verse 1, Isaiah declares that he will exalt and praise the name of God. Having relationship with God naturally must result in our worshiping God. We praise God. We sing of God's glory. We tell of his worthiness. We bow and declare him to be our Lord. We obey his commands for how to honor him. He tells us what to do. Hear me really clearly. If you are a follower of the Lord, praising God must mark your life. Singing God's praise must mark your life. By the way, I don't care if you're a good singer. God made you so he doesn't even care if you're a good singer. But he has commanded song from your lips. Joining with other believers in corporate worship must, must mark the life of a believer. Turning away from sin, changing to better obey the Lord must mark your life. If there's no praise, if there's no obedience, if there's no repentance, then you should question if in fact there is any actual relationship. Even more, praise of God is fitting, and it's joyful. God created us for His glory. God saved us for the sake of His name. Our response to glorify the Lord is a response that gives our lives meaning and fulfillment. There's no greater joy for you or for me than when we honestly honor our God, the one we call our Lord. Isaiah tells us why, why he'll praise the Lord, writing, For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Y'all, God has been faithful in the past. Do you know that? He has shown his power. He has fulfilled his promises. And that past faithfulness of God is a perfect promise of future faithfulness from God. Now, what Isaiah will write next for us from verses 2 to 5, it's all written in the past tense. He's saying God has done what's being said. But it's also a sign that God will continue to be faithful. In point of fact, God is so solid, so sure, so sovereign, that Isaiah can think of things that the Lord has not yet done as if they are already done deals. So look at 2 and 3. For you have made the city a heap, 
The fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. So verse 2, we see that God has crushed an enemy city. Now, contextually, and I don't have time to fill all this in for you from Isaiah, but contextually, this is not a reference to any particular individual city. This is a symbolic reference to a city representing man in our self-sufficiency and rebellion against God. In his faithfulness, God will defeat all the machinations of the godless. Every stronghold that man tries to build apart from God will fall. Every worldly philosophy that mankind tries to develop apart from God will be proved empty. Verse 3, we see that God will force men who were the strong, the leaders, the greatest foes of the Lord, He will force them to bow to Him and fear Him. All people would be wise to willingly bow before the Lord as friends rather than waiting for a day when they will bow as conquered enemies. But nevertheless, you will bow. Verses 4 and 5. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. God is a stronghold, a safe place. For the poor and the needy who come to him for protection, God is a safe place. He will ultimately shelter his people from the storm and from the heat. When the evil would blaze against us like the sun, God will cover us like a cloud. When the evil would blow at us like a mighty windstorm, God will be like a strong wall. Do you see why I would suggest that this section calls us to shelter in the Lord? You can have a relationship with the God who made you. He's mighty. He'll crush the evil. He'll shelter those who are under his protection. And this call to relationship is woven within Isaiah's praise of God. And this call to relationship with the Lord is what the first advent of Jesus was all about. Jesus came to bring the shelter of God for those who will come to him. Jesus came to promise the judgment of God for those who would refuse him. But you might feel like you don't see it all happening right now. I mean, be honest. Can you not look out and feel like the evil are changing the world? You look out sometimes and it looks like the faithful are crushed under sorrows or worldly evils. Here's what I'll tell you. The victory of God is a sure thing. The protection of God's people is for eternity, not merely this life. In this life, we will press forward. And in this life, we will spread the glory and praise of our Lord around the world. 
We will press to see that people of all nations hear the gospel and experience the change that Jesus Christ brings. We will push back against the darkness and we will declare the watch, to the watching world Jesus Christ reigns and we will look forward to the second advent, the return of Jesus, when all of these promises, all of these victories, which we will see in small today, are fully, gloriously, finally realized. Let's take a look at the victory, then the warning for the enemies of God before we wrap up. Point number two, point number two, hope in God's promises. Hope in God's promises. Look at verse six. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Y'all, here we see a promise. And how glorious this promise is. In the first five verses, we saw that God will be a shelter for those who come to take refuge in Him. Now we're going to see just a couple of things that are promised. And these promises, dear friends, are the things that we have to look forward to as we look forward to and await the Lord's return. These are what we anticipate in the next advent of Jesus. First, first we see a feast. Are you guys pro-feast, by the way? A couple pro-feasties. Good for you. God used Isaiah to speak of the glorious reward in a way that people can grasp, right? God promised a day to come when he would bless his people with the greatest of celebrations on the mountain of the Lord. Now, by the way, this is not a promise of a feast for Old Testament Israel. At least not only. How do we know? This is a promise for the kingdom of the Savior. God says he's going to make this a feast for all peoples. So this is a party. This is a celebration for people of every nation. There is no ethnic limit. There are no ethnic distinctions. There's no this group over here and that group over there. There's no your people and my people or his people and her people. This is all peoples of all every nation on the globe gathered together for a feast with no more bickering and no more fighting and no more difficulty between them. Isn't that glorious to think about? This is God promising a day to come when people from every nation will rejoice together. Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 7, 9 and 10 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
In the rejoicing that God has promised, we get more than just songs of praise to God, though. There's going to be food and wine, it says. And it's not just any food and wine. It is the richest of foods. It is the finest of wines. God will bring about a celebration for his people in which we find ourselves able to rejoice and be glad in ways that we have only seen in shadow in our lives. Let me just ask you, how many of you, and again, it was just Christmas yesterday, how many of you in the last couple of days have eaten something good? All right, that's good. Think about whether it was yesterday or some other time. What's the best food you've ever eaten? What's the most wonderful drink you've ever sipped? What's the most joyful celebration you've ever been a part of? All of those are like tiny arrows given to you by God to point you toward the day that the Lord is promising will come. Your best meal is a hint of what will come and be infinitely better than anything you've ever experienced. God will celebrate with his people in his kingdom with great joy. There's other places in the Bible where this kind of celebration is promised. Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Revelation 19, verse 9, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Friends, there's a day to come. When the Savior returns, when people from every nation will rejoice as the bride of Christ, as a unit together praising God, we will feast in the presence of our Savior. We will experience the joy that we've only felt hints of in the lives that we now lead. But there's more. You think it could get better than that? Because that sounds pretty good, right? All right. Let's keep going then. Look at verse 7 and 8. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken." Do you see what this promise is? Death will be no more. Like a heavy blanket, like a net that weighs someone down, our lives today are marked by death. While we know and we fully trust in the resurrection, we still experience the sadness of being parted from loved ones. We experience the difficulty and the frustration of facing down illnesses. We feel in our very bones the wages of sin. How many of you could amen that, by the way? Randy, how are your knees? <laughs> They're there, aren't they? <laughs> you ready for new ones? That's it. 
A day is coming when our Lord will swallow up the covering, the dark canopy, a covering that's cast over all peoples. It's a veil over all nations. It's the last enemy to be destroyed, and God promises he will destroy it. When the Lord swallows up death so that it no longer has any hold on our lives at all, then we will truly be made new. We will be forever made glorious. We will have glorious resurrection bodies that will match the body of our risen Savior. The Lord Jesus will dry every tear from our eyes. He will make up in one sweet moment for every single sorrow you've ever faced. We will never again sorrow under the, the, the hardships. We will never sorrow under the reproaches of a world that reproaches and hates our Lord because the Lord will be truly, finally, ultimately, completely victorious. How sure is this promise? Listen to the firmness of the words at the end of verse 8. It says, for the Lord has spoken. What happens when God speaks? It gets done. When God said, let there be light, light did not decide. There just was. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus didn't think about it. When the Lord speaks and says, I'm going to swallow up death forever, it is a done deal. It's a sure thing. It is unstoppable it's just something we haven't yet experienced. This is what biblical hope is. The Old Testament saint may have thought that the Messiah was going to usher in that world of victory in his first coming. And in a sense, it happened, didn't it? Jesus came. He rescued for God people from every nation. The church grows. The church pushes back the darkness. But there's so much in the world that has not yet come to pass. That feast, that resurrection promised for all the saints, the comforting of all sorrows, the final defeat of death, this is still to come. This is our guaranteed future. This is our glorious hope. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, and then 50 to 58. Listen to this. Verse 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then look at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. No, you gotta love, if Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, you think you want to listen, don't you? I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You all wouldn't want to live in heaven with these bodies on. You know that, right? I mean, you, you want a new one, right? Take a trade in. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. They ain't gonna die again. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Or Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I, I saw a holy city, new, the new, holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Church, we are awaiting these glorious events. The Savior has promised to return. He has promised to make all things new. He has promised us a feast in his presence with fullness of joy. He has promised us life forever with him in resurrection bodies. He has promised us all comfort and perfect peace. What do we do? Look at verse 9 of Isaiah 25. It says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We live in the light of his hope. We wait on the Lord with full confidence in him, in his promises, in his salvation. We live knowing that these promises make anything we face in this life worth it. Every sorrow you face, every sorrow is a reminder of the coming comfort of Christ. Every joy is a hint of the greater joy to come. All of them call us to love our Lord more, to worship him with everything we've got, to turn away from sin, to live in the light of his promise. But there's a warning needed too. Some will choose not to come to Jesus for life and hope. Some will choose to stand on their own and they face a terrible fate. A just fate, a right fate from a perfect God, but a terrible one. Point number three, tremble at the thought of God's holy judgment. Tremble at the thought of God's holy judgment. Look at 10 through 12. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. And Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in the dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of, of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls. He will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. 
Suddenly, Isaiah has words of the destruction of Moab. While God's hand rests on his mountain with his people in comfort and joy, God's judgment falls on Moab. It feels rather out of place given the sort of universal theme we were just hearing a lot of, right? What gives? Back in chapters 15 and 16, God had an oracle for the people of Moab. These people, outsiders to the nation of Israel, were in great danger from foreign enemies. And Isaiah felt great sympathy for the Moabites. He wept over their fate. And in the oracle, the Moabites are invited to come to Judah to get under the wings of God's protection and to be rescued, saved from their enemies. Moab would survive if they as a people would get under the rule of the son of David, the king God has promised and promised. Look at Isaiah 16, verses 4 and 5. Keep that oracle idea in mind. Let the outcasts of Moab, the word says, sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer when the oppressor is is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Listen, God offered the Moabites life. But they refused to come and get under his protection. They trusted their own strength. They trusted their false gods. And they faced destruction. And what we read about the destruction of Moab is ugly. It's terrible. Isaiah draws on the ugliest images he can think of to display the desolation and the destruction that they faced. They're going to be trampled down, stomped down, like you stomping straw into a dung hill. And then the language gives you this picture of them swimming in it like a swimmer in a pool. Exactly. Their mightiest fortifications will be brought low. And if this were only the promise for an ancient kingdom, that would be sad. But remember, we've been talking all chapter about the day of the Lord. Isaiah keeps saying, on that day, that day. This isn't merely about Moab. Instead, Moab is symbolic here of everyone who refuses the protective mercy of God. All who will not bow to the Lord and come to Jesus for mercy will face eternal death. They will remain under the wrath of Almighty God. All who have opposed God and done evil without repentance, will face the justice that only the Lord can bring. Friends, there is a glorious life and joy for the saved. Equally, there is a terrifying wrath 
that those who refuse Jesus will face. I urge you, tremble at the thought of God's holy judgment. If you don't know Jesus, come to Him, repent of sin, get under His grace before it's too late. And if you do know Jesus, know that His judgments are just, His wrath is perfect. Tremble at that just judgment. Thank God that He's rescued you from the very same fate because you deserved it too. And take the message of saving grace in Jesus to every lost person you can get to. Today, the day after Christmas, we rejoice in our celebration of the Savior's first coming. May we long for and be ready for His second. Let's pray together. God, You are so good. Your love does endure forever. And you've painted such beautiful pictures of hope, of heaven, of feasting in your presence. God, we long for that. And you've painted terrible pictures. True, right, dark, awful pictures of the judgment that people face who refuse your mercy. And God, I would just ask you, every soul that hears this message, I pray you would save us. Save the souls of those who don't yet know you. I guarantee that everyone in this room has a family member has a friend, has a co-worker, has a neighbor, has someone they know who needs you, who needs your grace. God, I pray, use us as you build your kingdom and bring your kingdom. Use us to be tools in your hand let us see people saved. We don't want them to be like those Moabites pictured in that chapter. We don't want them to be those who on the day of the Lord face your wrath. Make us a passionately evangelistic people and you by your spirit, please save souls. And give us joy, God, as we rejoice in the grace you've given us. Have mercy. Be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.